This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Season 3 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I explain why black history is American history and shouldn't just be acknowledged in February, but instead integrated into the everyday consciousness of the country because black people not only played arguably the most central role in founding, preserving, and building the United States into the richest and most powerful country in the world, they have also benefited and been acknowledged the least. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism. Now this begins with our three-step process of personally transforming to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is all about educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third step is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. Now, a few months ago, I received a call from my older brother. Uh, he's not just an older brother. He's like a role model, a mentor. I almost sound like a superhero growing up. Uh, someone who I aspired to be like, want to shape my life to kind of be like his, take life advice. Uh, I was inspired by him. He coached me quite a bit on a lot of lessons in life. You know, suffice to say, we're very close. And he knows all about uh, the things that shape me uh, because he is my big brother. My brother told me that uh, he had run into my high school football coach at an event uh, in, uh, in um, I think it was like a state meet or something like that. He told me that uh, my coach, who uh, happens to be white, uh, was saying how, you know, he as my coach was responsible, as responsible as anyone for my life's success. Whether you want to call me successful or not, uh, some people think so. And he certainly feels that I am and that he has some responsibility for it. He says, hey, he told my brother, you know, he's a corporate executive in a Fortune 500 company. He's an influential figure in his community. He's done so many great things. And he said, I'm so proud of what he has become. And he said, you, you know, you probably don't know this, but he quit the football team. And if it wasn't for me going to your house, talking to your parents, but specifically talking to him to come back, he probably would not have gone to Purdue. And if he had not gone to Purdue, who knows how things would have worked out. My brother said he was surprised to hear this because he hadn't heard me tell him that story. So he said, hey, is this true, what the coach told me? And without hesitation, I told him, yeah, it is true. Absolutely true. And I gave my high school coach, Coach Freeman, 
all the credit because it happened just like he said it did. And by the way, he left out the fact that he was the one who leveraged his relationship with the head recruiting coordinator at Purdue, who he had known himself. I think he had played college ball with this guy. He had leveraged that relationship for him to come to Key West and start recruiting me early, my freshman and sophomore years, which gave them a head start on my recruiting and was one of the main reasons why I ended up there. But he was also right that I did quit the team. I quit my junior year. I didn't like the fact it was one of the assistant coaches that yelled at me all the time. Disparaging comments and I'm not the guy that likes to get yelled at. Want to coach me? Give me feedback. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what I can do better. But don't disparage and continue to yell at me. I got tired of it. I didn't want to deal with it. And I felt like I had other options. So I quit. But Coach Freeman personally came to my house. He did talk to my parents, but he sat down and talked to me and he told me he would address it with that coach. He told me, don't worry about it. He even told me whatever I need, he'll be there for me. If I can't get a ride to to practice, call him. He'll come get me. If I need his car, if I need to borrow his car to go do something, whatever is needed, he would be there for me. He said he would do whatever it took for me to come back and stay because he saw a future a bright future that he believed that I could create for myself, whether it was in football or leveraging football as a stepping stone to something bigger. He was right. And I thank him for what he did. Coach Freeman is part of my history. We are inextricably linked. There have been many people who played major roles in my life that are part of my history. Many of them are black starting with my family, especially my great-grandmother, my Vera, my grandmother, my Ivana, and my mother, Joan. These three women are the top role models in my life, next to my brother and my sisters. But I've got cousins and aunts and uncles all have played a major role. I talked about my uncle Jeff in season one. Many, many people have played a major role, but there are a number of others a number of others who are white people, who are not family members, who played a major role in creating my history and are inextricably linked to my story. Whether it's my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Godwin, who showed belief in me and always made sure that I was recognized as one of the smartest kids in his class. Or my eighth grade English teacher, Mr. Aaronson, who challenged me. I talked about him in season one as well, who challenged me to push myself harder Because he saw me as one of the smartest kids, but I was not applying myself in the way I should. Or Coach Freeman, who I just talked about. Or my college professor, Dr. Craig Miller, who also really challenged me, but mentored me. And to this day, we're still great friends. Or my personal friend, Joe Farner, who's a third shift operator. I talked about him again, also in season one at one of our plants in the middle of rural Iowa. Here's a guy from Alabama, white guy, really mentored me and really helped me with a lot of advice. At the time, my first professional mentor, a guy named Jim Lynch, who helped sponsor my career early on and my most important career sponsor, a guy named Dave Johnson at General Mills, who hired me and ensured that I got promoted. Told me if you deliver, You will get to VP. I will make it happen. And he did. 
These individuals are inextricably linked to my history. For whatever success I've happened to have in my life, whether you call it success or not, whatever success I have, I can't ignore all the help I received along the way from all these folks. They're all part of my history. You know, the last several weeks, I saw some other examples of similar recognition on these linked histories that I thought were really, really cool to see be acknowledged. I watched the Grammys. I saw Lizzo win a Grammy. I think it was for Song of the Year. And uh, she got up and she was crying and she was so happy. She was recognizing. She could have recognized anyone. She did. She recognized people like Prince, the late, great music legend from Minneapolis. Of course, she recognized her family, but she also recognized the two white men who were standing behind her. And she said, if it wasn't for them believing in her, taking a chance on her, she probably would not be on that stage receiving the Record of the Year award. I watched LeBron James break the scoring record in the NBA. One of the longest standing records uh, that, that's still standing today or was until LeBron broke Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record. But he made a point not just to thank Kareem. Again, he thanked his parents, his family, but he also thanked the late commissioner of the NBA, the former commissioner, David Stern, a white guy. He also thanked the current commissioner, Adam Silver, for their roles in his story. I watched the Super Bowl which was historic. And it was so awesome to see the first time we had two African-American or black quarterbacks starting against each other in this historic game. It took 57 years of Super Bowls and 100 years of NFL championship uh, type games for this to happen. Literally 100 years. Fritz Pollard was the first black quarterback. He was also the first black head coach but that literally was a hundred years ago. There's only been three black quarterbacks to win the Super Bowl, and only seven have played in it. But leading up to the game, they interviewed Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts and were asking him lots of questions about this historic achievement. Of course, both young men thanked their families, of course, and many others who have helped them throughout their history. But I thought it was interesting. Patrick Mahomes obviously comes from a, a mixed race family. His father's African-American, his mother's white. Uh, you know, so by, by definition, he's thinking, you know, both people from different races look different. His wife is white as well. But I really love the fact that he took the time to not only thank Eric Biemini, who was his black office coordinator, but Andy Reid, his white head coach, and also the general manager that made the decision to trade up and draft him. They're part of his history. And Jalen Hurts, not only did he did he thank, again, his family and those around him, but he also made a point to thank his two college coaches, Nick Saban at Alabama and uh, Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, which made sense. But then he even brought up Peyton and Eli Manning as two people he wanted to thank. Two really great white quarterbacks that he said provided inspiration and role modeling for him to help him develop and get to where he is. Incredible, incredible story, incredible young men who made history, but also made sure to recognize those who are inextricably linked to their history, that are part of their history. All these people, these black men and women at the pinnacles of their careers who are achieving something really, really great, 
achieving things that very few people have ever done. When they had the opportunity to recognize those who've helped them, they could have recognized anyone or they could have limited it to a very small number of people, just their family. But they took the time to make sure and focus on those who other people may have forgotten. They did not exclude. They included to help tell their whole story, their whole history. Those folks were part of their story and they wanted to make sure they were acknowledged. February is Black History Month. But see, the way I view it is that we can't capture Black history in America in just one month because it covers 12 months. It covers 250 years of the United States history and 100 years of colonial history before that. Black history is inextricably linked to United States history. Black history is American history. And American history is black history. And it should be integrated into the everyday consciousness of every American. Throughout the history of the United States of America, black people have played arguably the most central and important role in founding, shaping, preserving, and building this country into the economic, military, and democratic superpower that it is. There's evidence that Africans made it to the Americas and established relations with the Native Americans before Columbus and before the Vikings. Africans were also among the crews of Columbus and other European explorers at the time that came in contact with the uh, Americas early on. Africans arrived with the earliest European settlers and helped build the English, Spanish, and French colonies that eventually become part of the United States of America. They helped win independence from Great Britain. In fact, it was a black man, Crispus Attucks, who was the first American colonist killed by the British to start the Revolutionary War. And he was martyred and was an inspiration to the colonists. And it was black revolutionary soldiers who helped turn the tide in the fight against the British to eventually win independence. African-Americans have fought every war for the United States since. The subsequent wars with Great Britain, the wars with Spain, Mexico, and France, and even sad to say the wars with the Native Americans, to take all the remainder of the land to fully form the contiguous United States as we know it today. Black people are also responsible for founding and building some of our biggest and most important cities, including New Orleans. Atlanta, New York, blacks literally built our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., from the ground up, including the White House and the Capitol and many other buildings and monuments. And yes, it was a black man, Jean-Baptiste Pont du Sable, who is credited as the founder of our third largest city, Chicago, back in the 1790s. But all these facts inextricably linking U.S. history to black history and vice versa. With all of those facts, there's only one month of the year, the shortest month, 28 days reserved to acknowledge this. And this one month has typically been boiled down to talking about and celebrating the most famous figures that we know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Harriet Tubman, ignoring all these other facts, most notably, 
not acknowledging, again, the fact that black Americans helped found, build, and establish this country, helped preserve this country to make it into the modern superpower that it is, while at the same time, again, being the group that has been least recognized, least acknowledged, and by by the way, has benefited the least from all these gains. Don't get me wrong. There's some black people who have benefited. No, no question about it. I'm one of them. But as a group, as a people, as a race in the United States, no. Here's a brief history lesson on this country, the United States of America, that all Americans should know. And it should be integrated into our consciousness as Americans every day. Because black history is American history and American history is black history. They are inextricably linked. The Ark of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Ark and join our movement. Let's start with the fact that the United States economy, the largest in the world, that is most responsible for enabling the United States to be the superpower that it is, was built most notably by and on the backs of black people. Slave labor enriched the colonies and accelerated their wealth and trade aspects that, in part, attracted the help of France, that allowed the United States to even think that it could challenge Great Britain for independence. Slave labor then built the wealth and infrastructure of the fledgling nation that enabled it to grow so quickly. The economy and wealth of the United States was slavery. Just to put it in perspective, the economic value of the 4 million slaves in 1860 was on average about $1,000 per person or about $4 billion in total. That was more than all the banks, railroads, and factories in the United States were worth combined at the time. It's hard to estimate a GDP in terms of the United States back in 1860, but I would estimate it to be somewhere less than $100 million. Of course, the Civil War happened, but what history forgets is that the turning point in the Civil War was not Gettysburg, as most people think. The turning point was the Emancipation Proclamation because it freed the slaves in the Confederate States, robbing the Confederacy of its main source of economic wealth and labor and inspiring those who were free and those who wanted freedom and those who were already in the North to fight for freedom and to save and preserve the Union. Black people helped win this war for freedom and helped save the Union, preserving the American future, the strength of America to be what it is today. There's no question If the Civil War had gone a different way, there would be no United States of America as we know it, and it certainly would not be the superpower that it is. Reconstruction followed, and it showed what true democracy could look like to a certain extent, because black people were finally able to be represented and vote, at least black men. 
course, women, white or black, still were not voting at the time. So it wasn't true democracy, but it was certainly dramatically different than anything the country had ever seen. Representation reached its zenith, true representation, certainly racially, that it's never seen since. Now, this was also the time, ironically, coincidentally, or maybe it makes the most sense, the U.S. economy began to explode. During the 1870s and 1880s, the U.S. economy rose at the fastest rate in its history, with real wages, wealth, GDP, and capital formation all increasing exponentially. By 1880, the United States had already become the second richest country in the world. Just 100 years since independence, it had already overtaken every country in wealth except Great Britain. Now, between 1880 and 1890, civil rights of African-Americans and their descendants, uh, the first martyr of the revolution, Crispus Attucks, and those who fought for freedom and independence from Great Britain, and those who fought to preserve the Union and protect the future strength of the United States of America were now relegated to secondary standard stat status as many of the gains in Reconstruction were rolled back. In the South, Jim Crow laws were enacted, subjecting black people to racial violence and hatred, exploitation as low-cost labor, slavery in a different form, a different name in many cases the debt-crunching practice of sharecropping. And in the North, where things were relatively better, black people were still discriminated against, paid a lower wage for the same work, and isolated into some of the poorest neighborhoods with a practice called redlining, which over generations would rob black people of wealth. But the elimination of slavery did ignite the Industrial Revolution in the United States, and blacks participated in a much-needed labor force to fuel this industrial explosion. And the United States continued to grow at astronomical rates economically. By the 1920s, just a mere 50 years since the end of slavery, in the end of the Civil War, the United States became the world's richest country with the world's largest national economy. Just 150 years since even becoming a country with a GDP just over $100 billion in 1929, a 1,000 times increase from 1860. Of course, the country then experienced the Great Depression of the 1930s, but recovered in the 1940s and 50s, continuing to build on its great wealth. But again, while the country was booming, Blacks' plight, in many cases, worsened. Their toil and sacrifice in helping build the country and send it on its way to becoming the world's superpower was not being acknowledged or rewarded. They were not benefiting. There were some, again, limited success stories, but for the vast majority of the black population in the United States, the best case scenario was, again, in the North, even though they were redlined, they still had decent jobs, could have a decent life, relatively safe, even though they were excluded from promotions and from building great wealth, still was terrible in the Jim Crow South with brutal lynchings, killings, 
for things as simple as trying to vote or looking at a white person in the eye, much less having a job where you can imagine in your wildest dreams, fair wages, promotions, participating in the American dream. Then the civil rights movement came and was black people who challenged the fact that the United States was not living up to this American dream for everyone. That they were not able to participate in this American dream. The continued success, the explosion of the United States as an economy over the last almost 200 years of its existence. They didn't just challenge it for themselves, but for many, many others. They eventually were able to work together across racial lines and and get Jim Crow struck down. Brown versus the Board of Education, declaring desegregation in schools illegal. Even eventually uh, uh, introducing things like equal opportunity and affirmative action. And these progressive actions and law changes opened up more jobs and opportunities for promotions and the passing of anti-redlining legislation in many areas. And these progressive changes, again, promoted innovation and competitiveness and labor participation, as they had done almost 100 years before igniting the Industrial Revolution. This, in turn, generated more growth and greater opportunity and unleashed another wave of incredible increased productivity in the United States economy. By 1969, the United States GDP crossed $1 trillion for the first time, another 10x increase or 10 times increase from 1929. In only 40 years, we'd gone to a trillion dollar economy. But the civil rights movement did not open all doors. It It didn't create true equity of opportunity in the United States. The American dream was still out of reach for many women and other minorities, but specifically, again, the black people whose on backs this initial economy was built. And so there was another push for progressive action, again, mostly led by black people. And the diversity, equity, inclusion movement was initiated, unleashing another round of increased innovation competitiveness in labor participation, which in turn, once again, generated more growth and greater opportunity in at least another wave of increased productivity in the United States. And in spite of the recession of the 1970s and 80s and the Great Recession in the early 2000s, and even the recession caused by the COVID pandemic in 2019 and 21, in 2022, the United States GDP hit Another all-time record of $25.46 trillion, a 9% increase or over $2 trillion, even more than it was the year before, and a 25 times increase than it was in 1969. This incredible growth continues, in my opinion, in large part because of the direct and indirect contributions of black Americans from the founding of this country's economic base on the back of black people in slavery that built the initial wealth base from which this country grew to the progressive policies that unleashed the power of diversity that defines the strength of America's competitive advantage today. 
It's a historical fact. Black people built this country and are responsible for its superpower status, but are the group that has benefited and been acknowledged the least. Consider the wealth gap between white and black families that began with slavery and persisted through Jim Crow, but was targeted to be improved as a result and outcome of the civil rights movement with progressive policies and programs like equal opportunity, affirmative action, and later diversity, equity, and inclusion. That wealth gap has actually increased in the last 60 plus years. In other words, it's actually gotten worse since the civil rights movement. In 1953, the difference between the median wealth gap between white and black families in today's dollars to account for inflation was about $47,000. Today, if you compare that apples to apples, it's over $250,000. This means that at the same time, that the U.S. economy was growing over 25 times from a trillion dollars to over $25 trillion, the wealth gap, instead of decreasing or at least holding steady, actually increased five and a half times, clearly indicating that black Americans were least benefiting as a whole and white Americans actually were most benefiting. For additional context, the average black household earns about half as much as the average white household. White households own 86.8% of the overall wealth in the United States, even though they only account for about 65% of the population or the households. By comparison, black households hold only about 2.9% or just below 3% of the wealth while accounting for just under 14% of the population. Look, there are many black success stories. Don't get me wrong, but there are exceptions. When you look at the overall black population, the majority or the average black household, they continue to benefit least from the success of America. Again, even with all of these programs that have been targeted to try to change the disproportionate disadvantage that black people have had. Now, there are a lot of people out there, uh, some who believe that some of those programs were unfair to white people and disadvantaged white people. Programs, again, like Equal Opportunity, Affirmative Action, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. But again, from what I just described and some of the facts I'll get into here in a second, actually, they did not help black people as much as you think. And they actually help white people. In fact, an argument can be made. Again, that things have gotten worse for black people while gotten better for white people. And specifically, when you think about those programs, who's actually been helped the most? The argument can be made that it's actually white women who've been the singular group who has benefited most from these policies that were designed to drive equity and to close the wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans. Again, if you look 60 or so years ago, women, white women in particular, only made about a third of college graduates. Today, they are the majority, singular group, even greater than white men. Just a few years ago, the average woman earned 30% less than the average man. 
or about 70 cents on every dollar a man earned. Now, white women earn 10% more than black men and 20% more than black women. 60 years ago, there were virtually no uh, Fortune 500 companies that were led by women. Today, there are 44 Fortune 500 CEOs who are white women, which is a record high. There are only six black CEOs, four men and two are women. And there have only been three black women ever to lead one of the country's largest companies. White women also hold about 25% of the Fortune 500 board seats. Black people only hold 6.2% of the director seats on boards, and half of those are black women, so a little, little over 3%. Up to 1970, there were a total of six women governors of United States states ever. Today, there are 12 women governors of United States, uh, states of the United States, all are white women. There has never been a black woman governor. Despite all of these impressive gains, and no one can argue that these are impressive gains for white women, that in my opinion, and I don't think most people can argue this, are unquestionably assisted by the civil rights movement and the gains and implementation of progressive policies that I mentioned earlier that were intended to close the wealth gap and the and the uh, opportunity gap between black and white people in America, it is ironic, it's ironic that many surveys continue to show that the majority of white women actually oppose these programs, specifically affirmative action. White women have done well. There's no question about that. They've benefited significantly from the historical progress pushed by black people. But white men haven't done bad either. You could argue that the group that actually feared that they would lose the most from these progressive gains that were demanded and driven by black people have actually gained power, money, and influence. 70 of our 100 U.S. senators, 70 percent, if my math is right, are white men, even though white men are only a little over 30% of the population. There are only three black senators today and a total of 11 in the history of the country. And two of those were during Reconstruction. 33 of our state governors are white men. Currently, there's one black governor and only six black governors in the history of the country. And only three were elected. Three were appointed, and two of those were during Reconstruction. 86% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are white men. Again, white men make up just over 31% of the population. As I mentioned earlier, there's only six black CEOs, barely making up 1% of the Fortune 500. Blacks, again, are just over 13% of the population. And when it comes to boards of directors, Fortune 500 boards, once again, the largest companies in America, white men make up almost 70% of those board seats and over 80% of the board chair role, some of the most powerful positions in business in this country. Again, they're 31% of the population. Again, only 6% or so of board directors are black. What about sports, which has long been a bellwether 
for the country. There are many people that pay more attention to sports than they do to the news or anything else. Since integration of major sports in the 1940s, the impression is that it's been great for black people. Man, Jackie Robinson is almost celebrated as much as Dr. King for helping change and integrate America. Integration in sports and all the progress since certainly has created lots of black success stories, black legends, black heroes, and of course, black millionaires. There's no doubt about that. But it's also been great for this country as a whole and great for white people. It has made a lot of the country, a lot of the white people in this country, a lot of money. It's created and grown a lot of wealth. And like Chris Rock once said, the comedian Chris Rock, who actually has had some really, really uh, well thought through quotes in his career. There's a difference, Chris Rock said, between being rich and being wealthy. He says Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, is rich. But the white guy who signs Shaq's checks is wealthy. And there's a difference. There's levels to this thing. Let me put it in perspective. Let's start with baseball. The average major league baseball team is worth just over $2 billion. With the New York Yankees, Los Angeles Dodgers, Boston Red Sox, Chicago Cubs, all worth over $4 billion each. The Yankees, however, are the most valuable major league franchise. George Steinbrenner purchased the New York Yankees for $8.8 million in 1973. Today, that investment is worth over $6 billion. What about the NBA? The NBA has 10 franchises worth over $3 billion. The Golden State Warriors, the New York Knicks, and the Los Angeles Lakers are all worth over $6 billion. But the Golden State Warriors, that franchise is the most valuable in the NBA. They started as the Philadelphia Warriors and were purchased in 1962 for $850,000 and subsequently moved to San Francisco. Now that investment is worth $7.6 billion. NFL franchise. Let's talk about the NFL. America's sport. Used to be baseball was America's sport, but the NFL, football, is America's sport. The average NFL franchise, in fact, I would just say every single, this is every single NFL franchise is worth at least a billion dollars today. During the civil rights movement, there were none that were even worth a million dollars. And there's 10 that are worth over $4 billion today. The Dallas Cowboys, their ownership in 1960 bought the franchise for $600,000. Now the Cowboys are worth an estimated $8 billion. The Dallas Cowboys are the most valuable franchise in all of America's sports. What about the guys that run these major sports leagues? Roger Goodell, who's a commissioner of the NFL, is far and away the highest paid commissioner of any of the four major sports in North America. He made just under $64 million in 2019 and 20 and 2020-21 season, and that dwarfs the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, and the Major League Baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred's uh, estimated compensation, which is $10 million for Silver and $17.5 million for Manfred. It is hard to imagine 
that these franchises would be worth as much as they are, that these leagues would be worth as much as they are, and these commissioners would be making as much money as they are if it were not for black star athletes. And let's not forget that 80% of the players in the NBA and NFL are black. Considering all the money that's been made from the major sports since integration. And I'm talking pro and college, which I haven't even got into all the, the money that is made at, in collegiate sports. All of the, all of the gear and apparel. The, the massive TV contracts and the billions of dollars. All the sports talk shows that have been created. Even networks that all they do is sports. ESPN, the NFL Network, the Big Ten Network. I go on and on and on. All these companies, these are all companies, enterprises, are owned and run by white men, mostly. Immense fortunes have been created through the integration and participation of star black athletes in both college and professional sports in America. The fact of the matter is that all this progress, yes, it helped create a few black millionaires. It made some of them household names and heroes. But there's no question that it has enriched white men more than anyone else. Remember, there's never been a black commissioner of any of the major sports leagues, even though the majority of the players by far are black. There's never been a black owner in Major League Baseball or the NFL, even though the majority of the players specifically the NFL, are black. Today, there is only one black owner across all four major sports in the United States, and that's in the NBA. Charlotte Hornets majority owner, Michael Jordan. Visit us at joinark.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. Most of us know who Michael Jordan is. But how many other important and impactful, influential, history-making, black hidden figures are there that have been forgotten, that are not getting the credit that they deserve? You know, luckily, there was a movie made of hidden figures, the three African-American women who made a significant and tremendous impact in the space race. Catherine Goble Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson had a major Hollywood film made about them, and a lot of people now know who they are. But many other figures are not so lucky. What about Matthew Henson, who actually was the first to reach the North Pole, not Perry, who celebrated for it? What about Lewis Howard Latimer, who partnered with Edison to create many of the inventions that Edison is historically famous for? What about Elijah McCoy, who invented the auto lubrication systems that automatically lubricate bearings in huge manufacturing factories? His invention was so innovative and so great and became so essential especially during the explosion of manufacturing and industry in the United States that helped build that $25 trillion economy that companies demanded that every one of their lubrication systems were the real McCoy. That's where that term came from. 
that talks about something that's authentic and the best. The real McCoy came from Elijah McCoy. What about Garrett Morgan? How many lives have been saved with his inventions of the gas mask and traffic lights? People should think about him every time they see a movie in which someone, some action hero puts on a gas mask. Garrett Morgan's name should come to their mind. When you stop at a traffic light and realize that you're being kept safe on our roads, Garrett Morgan's name should come to your mind. What about Benjamin Barrett Banneker, the great scientist and astronomer and author who published an almanac that included all sorts of astronomical calculations and commentaries and title information that became so vital and critical to farmers and business owners. It basically was like Google before Google. And what about Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, who performed the first successful open heart surgery in the world and founded the first interracial hospital and created two of the first hospital-based training programs for nursing. And there are many, many others who have not been acknowledged, not been recognized. In 28 days, to fit all of this history of our country in to make people aware is simply not enough. Black people built this country and are responsible for its superpower status as much or more than anyone else. But are the group that has benefited and been recognized and acknowledged the least. Can't true history at least be taught in our schools to compensate for black Amer- the, the black American forefathers and foremothers who've been forgotten, who've not been acknowledged. Even if you don't get reparations, geez, at least recognize these folks, credit them, acknowledge them as founders, as builders, as change agents of the United States of America. Isn't this the least we can do? I know, look, many of you have heard this debate about CRT. And if I ask most of you what CRT was, you probably couldn't tell what the actual acronym stands for. Certainly probably could not define exactly what it is. It's become a villainized term that people don't even know what it is. It's been used out of context for political agenda. Because there's people who want to create fear and misinformation who simply also don't want the people who really helped build this country to be recognized. Look, I'm not going to talk about CRT. I'm just going to ask you to use common sense. Because if you ask most people if they believe that accurate history should be taught, a full account of the history, especially in our country, that our kids should understand full history. Don't say CRT anything like anything like that. Just history. Correct history. Is that better for our kids to be taught that or to remain ignorant? That they're better to be fully informed so they can capitalize and learn from what's worked in the past and avoid the mistakes of the past as we go forward. Most people would agree that that's common sense. That's good common sense. This is why in Germany, they teach kids throughout their lives about the Holocaust, about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and that Germany did that. Germans did that. And they must never allow it to ever happen again so they can recognize the warning signs and not be ignorant. 
to be fully educated. You must stamp out ignorance. To me, this is what we should be focusing on. The teaching of the full account of United States history, which inextricably is linked to and enabled by black history. Black history cannot be captured in just one month because it impacts all 12 months of all 250 years of this country, of all the 150 years before that when there were colonies or settlers or whatever you want to call it. There is no United States as we know it. There is no superpower of the world. There is no richest country in the world. There's no richest country, in fact, that the world's ever seen without the contributions from the beginning of black people. And today, this history is not being taught in most cases in a complete way. And in some cases, like a case of Florida, flat out being banned from being taught. This is why what Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, what he's doing is so dangerous. Banning the teaching of AP black history in Florida schools is basically denying and banning the teaching of real American history. Look, I grew up in the state of Florida, in the Florida Keys, in Monroe County, on the island of Key West, the southernmost point in the continental United States. I never learned in school about some of the ugliest history in the state of Florida when it comes to black people in particular, like the massacres of black people in Ocoee, in Rosewood, and all the lynchings that occurred in the state. I think Florida, if not the number one state for lynching, certainly in the top three, didn't learn about all that. And I know that there's some people that don't want to have that ugliness taught in our schools. But I also never was taught or exposed to any of the truly inspiring black Florida history that's specific to the state, my county, and my city that directly showed the impact and the creation of Florida by black people. That Eatonville, Florida, incorporated in 1887 is the oldest black incorporated municipality in the United States. It was the first town successfully established by African-American freedmen. That the first black settlement in the area that we call North America that would become the United States, the land that became the United States, was Fort Most. Fort Most, just north of St. Augustine, was established in 1738. It was a free black settlement and played a very important role in the development of Spanish Florida and ultimately colonial North America and the United States. I never learned that there were black Seminoles in Florida who were mostly blood descendants of the Seminole people, Native Americans, free Africans, and some escaped African slaves who allied themselves with Seminole groups in Spanish Florida and helped fight the Seminole Wars with the U.S. That Florida had 58 black office holders in the 1800s during Reconstruction. That the first elected African-American sheriff in the state of Florida was in my home county. Monroe County Sheriff Charles F. DuPont in 1889 was elected sheriff of Monroe County. Ironically, he was just inducted recently into the Florida Law Enforcement Hall of Fame. And I also didn't know that the first law enforcement officer killed in a line of duty in Monroe County in the Florida Keys, where I'm from, was one of Sheriff DuPont's deputies, a black deputy named Frank 
Adams. And that the white man that killed him was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Black people, African-Americans are most responsible for establishing the financial and infrastructure base that set the United States on a path to superpower. And then helped unleash the strength of diversity and innovation and productivity that dramatically accelerated the United States to actually becoming the world's first modern superpower, while also forcing the country to make progressive changes in an attempt to actually live up to its promise of the home of the free, where everyone is created equal and has equal access to the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, e pluribus unum, that out of many, many, many different Americans, there's one strong United States of America. I didn't hear much about black history in the United States and in Florida and Monroe County or the Florida Keys. And I didn't think there was much. It wasn't until my wife started doing some research on my family's history that really started piquing my interest. She discovered that my great grandfather was one of the first black customs house inspectors in Florida, right in Key West. And my grandfather, my dad's father, was one of the first black mail carriers in the Florida Keys. And because his son, my uncle, followed in his footsteps, they carried the mail all over Key West. And they were respected. Both of their names were Samuel D. Leggett. But they went by their middle names. D was for Donzel, which is my name. And because I had their name, many people knew me and gave me the benefit of the doubt because I was Donzel Leggett, the grandson of the mail carrier, the nephew of the mail carrier. And it's important. And I'm proud of it. But it's no less or no more important than other parts of my story and my history that are intertwined and impacted by other people, many of them white. Like my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Godwin. Like my eighth grade teacher, Mr. Arrington, Aronson. Like my good friend, Joe, from Iowa. The guy from Alabama. Like my first professional mentor, Jim. And like the guy who hired me and ensured that I got the opportunity to be promoted to vice president, officer level, Dave. And of course, the guy who talked to my brother, Coach Freeman. Coach Freeman had an impact on me that is part of my history. Our histories, our stories are interconnected, inextricably linked. There's no question in my mind I wouldn't be where I am if it not, if it were not for Coach Freeman intervening and making a point to directly connect and influence me to come back. When my brother asked me that question and told me that story, I could have used revisionist history. I could have turned to alternative facts. I could have just tweaked it a little bit. I could have ignored it altogether and just said, man, that didn't happen. But Coach Freeman deserved that credit. He deserved that acknowledgement. He deserved to be recognized as part of my history. Our histories are inextricably linked. Black history is American history. So I say to the people of the United States of America, 
to my white brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, Latin brothers and sisters, immigrants, everyone, all the brothers and sisters out there, no matter how you identify, forget about the buzzwords. Forget about the titles and acronyms that you don't even know what they mean. Just use your own common sense. Teach real history. It's the right thing to do. Teach black history because it is American history. Complete American history by teaching black history. Celebrate it. Integrate it in the curriculum. Acknowledge it. Because black history is American history. They're inextricable. And because it's the right thing to do to honor our past, to educate our present, and to enable our future. Erasing your ignorance, learning, and recognizing that black history is American history and American history is black history. Yes, I'm going to keep saying it to make sure it gets through. And if you still have doubts and fears of losing something by acknowledging the correct past, just remember that based on the historical results of black history that I've shared, progress for black people actually benefits you. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change Podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.